In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever into the ages of all ages. Amen. Today we begin the Feast of the Cross, which is three days, today, tomorrow, and the coming day, in which we celebrate the discovery of the Holy Cross under a pile of rubble uh, in Jerusalem in the 4th century by the uh, Queen Mother, St. Helen, uh, and St. Constantine, um, and all of the um, ensuing miracles that happened after that. And these historical events are uh, really beautiful, and they have um, uh, a beautiful significance in our lives uh, um, and in our faith. But what I would like to focus on maybe today more is a little bit of how uh, the cross is and what the cross is to each one of us. So to begin, um, I'd like uh, each of you, myself included, to reach over somewhere along your neck and find the cross that you're wearing. I'm assuming that you're wearing one. If you aren't, then uh, we would certainly, the church would be delighted to give you one, similar to the one that I'm wearing now. Um, and I, I want you to, uh, to uh, find that cross and uh, don't put it down, not quite yet. I want you to hold on to it for a second. Um, close your eyes. And I want to ask you to uh, describe it in, in your mind. Maybe you, you know what it looks like, so maybe you don't need to, uh, to, to uh, think too hard. Uh, feel the cross that is in your hands. What does it feel like? So mine, I'll just describe mine, is on a particularly small chain. So even if I were to look down at it, I'd probably end up cross-eyed and have a lot of difficulty. Um, the ends are kind of a bit pokey um, and sharp, um, which is something I've never really felt before. Uh, and the rest of it is quite smooth and it feels like it's made of wood. Okay, that gives you an idea of what the cross hanging around your neck feels like. Now I wanna ask you maybe a little bit more of a deeper question. What is the cross, not the one hanging around your neck, but the one in your life, what does that one feel like? Maybe you need to, to close your eyes to describe it, or maybe it is ever evident before you. I remember Lent a few years back. Um, I was, God gave me the blessing of accompanying a, a lot of people who were going through very difficult times in a very short period of time. And as I, as I was accompanying these people, each person would say to me, I guess this is my cross that I have to bear. I guess this is my cross that I have to bear. And as we were getting towards the end of Lent and we we're getting closer to Holy Week, everyone that was going through a hard time was speaking to me about the cross in their life as though it was some kind of disastrous event. And I was thinking to myself, does that right? Does that make sense? And it, it really kind of bothered me. I'll ask uh, Michael, if you don't mind, to go back to the, the Pauline. We're going to read a little bit of the Pauline together, and then a little bit of the Catholic epistle together, and we're going to try to do this all in under 10 minutes because of the time that we have today. And it seemed like the cross in somebody's life was something that, you know, it would be better if it just didn't show up, but if it did, I would try to bite my tongue and just accept it. But really, it would be better if it just didn't, you know? 
like I lost my job, I got diagnosed with cancer. I mean, all of these things, right? You know, uh, like, you know, my son or daughter is sick. I failed a, a big exam that I'm going to have to wait a year to, to do again. And that's going to significantly alter the, my career, etc., etc. Like these are, these are big things. And, you know, people, would, people were saying to me, and I think we've all we maybe heard others say it or we can recognize it. I guess that's my cross that I have to bear. And it's just very discordant to me. Obviously, none of us wish for any of these things upon ourselves or upon anyone else. At the same time, the cross of Christ, as we were singing in the doxologies this morning, is our weapon, is our joy, is our light. So how do we reconcile these? Is the cross something that I run towards? Or is the cross something I run away from? Or is the cross something that I kind of try to like pretend isn't there? But if it, if it forces its way into my life, I will bite my tongue and politely accept it. What is the cross to you and to me? Well, if we read the, the Pauline epistle that was read to us this morning again, Carefully, we find that indeed, indeed, the cross is different things to different people. If you have a, a, a Bible or you have it on your phone and you wish to, to follow along, we're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 17 to 26. And I'm going to just explain very little things very quickly because of the time that we have. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. What is St. Paul saying? He's saying, Christ didn't send me to build up some big institution, to build some empire, to start some movement. Christ sent me to preach the gospel, and that not with wisdom of words. He sent me to do it in very simple ways, lest the cross of Christ be made of no effect. What does that mean? That means that if, if I am an excellent orator, maybe people will believe what I'm saying due to me, due to, due to my oratory skills, due to my ability to convince people, due to, right? But if I state things which are very simple and actually somewhat offensive, you are a sinner in need of of the, 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 the forgiveness of God, you are born to die and you will die unless someone gives you eternal life. Those are kind of offensive things to say to somebody. And if I say them in very plain and simple terms, which are offensive to people and people come running, then obviously they're not coming running because of, of how well I've convinced them, but because of the message itself and the power in the message itself. For the message of the cross, verse 18, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. See here, all of a sudden, there's a dichotomy. He's saying that the cross is very polarizing. The cross of Christ is very polarizing. To those who are perishing, it's considered foolishness. And that's what we see when Jesus is crucified. When Jesus is crucified, those who have rejected him think he's foolish. And they tell him, if, if you are able to save others, save yourself. And they tell him, the thief on the, on the left tells him, save yourself and save us also. If you can, if you are the son of God, do it, right? And they ridicule him. So it's foolishness to those who don't believe. 
But to those who believe, it is what? It is the power of God. Why is it the power of God? Because it is, it is why? A simple question that, 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 that any believing Christian can answer. Why is the cross the power of God? Because it is through the death of Christ that Christ died, that because he died, he rose from the dead and he overcame death by his life. And to use the beautiful pun of St. Athanasius, death has died by death. By the death of Christ, death ontologically has died and is no more. And death, which used to be this ultimate end, this scary end of each person, has now become not an end, but a passage, a portal, a, a, a means by which to go on to live forevermore. So the cross has become the door to eternal life, when before it used to be the end of eternal death to every person. And so the cross has become the message of salvation. And so the cross has become something glorious and something beautiful because it is, it is the door, it is the herald, it is, it is the, 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 the first evidence of everlasting life. And then he goes on to say, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? No one could have foreseen that God would save the world as he did and as he continues to do. In fact, in Habakkuk 1.5, Habakkuk is questioning God and saying, how can you let the wicked prosper? And how can you this? And how can you that? And how can you that? And after he's out of breath, God answers him and tells him, I will do a work which is so great, which is so amazing, that were I, tell you, were I to tell it to you, you would never believe. Now, we can take that as a personal message from God. We can take it as a, a personal prophecy in our lives that God has yet beautiful things to, to do in our lives that are so beautiful that were he to announce them to us we wouldn't we, 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 we wouldn't believe or we could also see that in a cosmic or messianic perspective that he's speaking about the incarnation and the life and the death and the resurrection of christ the full life of christ you see what is it to be a christian in very simple terms to be a Christian in very simple terms is to decide to follow Jesus. Why do we decide to follow Jesus? Well, to be very practical and simple, it is because we have come to the conclusion after looking at all the other 359 degrees of opportunity around us and other things that we could choose to follow and invest ourselves in, that they all lead to death. And that since they all lead to death, there is nothing which does not lead to death other than Christ. The life of Christ does not end in death, but the life of Christ passes through death and transforms death into life. And so having looked at all of our options, having examined everything on the menu, having looked at every possible thing, we've come to the conclusion that there is life alone in the life of Christ. And so that anything in my life which is in the life of Christ is bound to go through death and to end in everlasting life. Both. Not just everlasting life. It's a package deal. 
the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the whole life of Christ. And anything which is in my life which is not in the life of Christ is perishing. At best, will be annihilated. At worst, will burn in hell forevermore. Anything in the life of Christ is living forevermore. So we ask ourselves, how much of my life is in the life of Christ? And when I, when, I, when I do that, I realize that the life of Christ is dynamic and the life of Christ is diverse. And the life of Christ is full of healing sick people and hugging lepers, hugging lepers. You know, in, this, in the pandemic now, and I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be careful, and I'm actually very grateful to all of you who are following all the rules and being so careful and allowing us to continue having our churches open. Thank you, thank you very much. But in the life of Christ, Jesus hugged lepers. Like people with contagious skin diseases that could lead to death. That's part of the life of Christ. In the history of the church, in, in pandemics, and I shared this before, in, 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 in a great epidemic in the third century, the church closed its doors because it was too busy sending its priests and deacons out in the street to care for the dying. And more Christians died then than in a, in a mass persecution across the whole world shortly thereafter. That is our heritage. That is our ancestry. Our ancestry is not an ancestry of fear, but an ancestry which looks death in the face and sees the cross and sees the resurrection that is standing right behind it and has no fear of any of these things. For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message priests to save those who believe. The Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. This is what he's saying. He's saying that the Jews, and it doesn't matter, you can put any other word for Jews here because it's no longer just the Jews, are seeking a sign. They kept going to Jesus and they said, show us a sign. Do what you did in Capernaum. Do it here. Uh, we heard that you did this. Do it here. They want a magic show. Jesus never gave them a magic show. Jesus isn't a magician. He's a savior. He's a lover of humankind. He didn't heal people to do a magic show. He healed people because he had compassion on them, because he loved them. They were not some object, some spectacle, some freak show to be looked at. Look at this freak show. Look at this, look at this weirdo with three arms. I'm going to heal him and give him two. How... How base is that? How, forgive me, wicked is that? That the idea that Christ would use somebody's illness, somebody's passion, difficult, their, 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 their pain, their suffering, as a, a method by which to glorify himself, even if it were to make others believe. He would never do that. He would never do that. The person who's asking for a magic show has no idea who they're asking the magic show to because he would never do it. Over and above all of what I just said, he also has nothing to prove to you. So if you're asking for a magic show, go look somewhere else. Then he says, and is foolishness, 
The Jews seek uh, request the sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. The Greeks are seeking some rational explanation of why God is doing what He is doing. And there is no rational explanation for it. It is eros maniacus, which we've spoken about before. It is maniacal erotic love. It is irrational love through an irrational, almost psychotic love. Psychotic in the sense that it is from an alternate frame of reality. God does what no human being would ever do. And in the book of Romans, St. Paul says, For a righteous man, one might think to die. But for a sinner, why would he die? Why would he die? And who are we? And we are his creation. So God creates us. So we can mess up. So he can save us by becoming one of us. So we can kill him. Where's the logic? Where's the logic? Where's the wisdom? You're going to understand this by logic, by wisdom? Never. Never. So what's the solution? If it's not a sign, and it's not... And it's not... If it's a sign, and it's not logic, and it's not rationale. So then how can God be approached through the cross? What's through the cross? We're running out of time. So we're just going to go quickly to what St. Peter tells us. St. Peter is very practical. St. Peter says about St. Paul, look, I don't know what he's saying. He's saying some really lofty stuff, some really, you know, high level stuff. I don't really understand what he's saying and most people don't either. And in trying to, to you know, faking that they understand it, they twist it to their own destruction. But St. Peter says something really beautiful and he tells us what the cross is in our own life. He's, he's saying, servants be submissive to your masters with all fear and so on, but not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief and suffering wrongfully. Ouch. Did you just hear that? He says, this is commendable before God. If one endures grief and suffering wrong wrongfully. And he goes on to explain, because he knows that this is like a cat scratching a chalkboard to our ears, that it's hard for us to hear that. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? What credit is it to you if you're speeding and a police officer pulls you over and politely gives you a ticket and you politely say, okay, and you take it? What credit is that to you? You were speeding, you got a ticket, you deserve it, right? Like, why are you a superhero? What's supernatural about accepting the consequences of our actions gracefully and not being a sore loser and not stomping our feet and screaming and yelling? <laughs> this is just being human. There's nothing supernatural about that. He says, you want to see supernatural? I'll tell you supernatural. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. You do good. You do the right thing. You stand up for what's right. And you get slapped on the wrist. That is very precious to God. That is very beautiful to God. That 
is very pleasing to God. Why? Why? Because then you are being a disciple of Jesus. Because that's what Jesus did. In the gospel, they want to stone him. And he asks them a question. He says to them, for which one of my good works do you stone me? What he's asking them is, what did I do wrong? You want to stone me. Okay, stone me. But what's, what's, what's the logic here? People were against Jesus. People hated Jesus. People followed Jesus. But his enemies hated him without a cause, like it says in the prophecies, like it says in Isaiah. They hated me without a cause. So when they hate you without a cause, and Jesus told us, if they did this to me, they will do it to you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they hated me, they will hate you. If we walk in his footsteps, we should expect the same life as him. If we live his life, we should expect his life. But see, I'm thinking I'm going to follow Jesus, but when I get to the cross, there's going to be some detour, and I'm just not going to have to go there. No. Why? Never like that. I'm going to finish with one story that I shared maybe once with you before, but I'll share it again. It usually brings me to tears, but hopefully I'll just be able to compose myself. good friend of mine, I haven't seen in a long time now, um, was very far from God, living a very wayward life, drugs, sex, women, everything, multiple women a day, like horrible life. Anyways, someone I grew up with a very long time ago calls me up. I'm like, hey, so-and-so, long time, blah, blah, blah. He says, yeah. He said, God has changed my life and he tells me a really beautiful story that I, we don't have the time for right now, nor is it relevant to the point. But he, God had, had encountered him in such a way that he had a, a 180 degree turnaround in his life. And he says, now I read the Bible all day long. I read Jesus' words all day long and I feel like I need to do what he says. So what, but what should I do? I said, I told him, pick any commandment that you find and just commit yourself to doing it 100%. Tell yourself, I want, to, I want to achieve this to the fullest. Lord, I want to do exactly what you meant when you said this. Not halfway, not three quarters way. I want, I want to go 100% with this. He said, okay. Calls me up a few days later and he tells me, Jesus says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. And so on. I said, great. I love that kind of ministry. Do that. He says, great. So he starts taking care of, of homeless people, especially in the dead of winter. Anyways, this was like 2013-ish or something when the queen first had her, like, like her jubilee or something, the, the ju her jubilee award. And you could nominate somebody for winning the, the, the Queen Jubilee Award or something. And she gave out, I don't know, like 3,000 of them or something in Canada. So get this, the homeless nominated him and he got the award. He didn't tell anybody. He was visiting Toronto, we went out for coffee and we talked and this and that. And, and uh, you know, we have so much more in common now since his life has changed 
Um, and so we're talking, and as we're getting up, he puts his hand in the inside of his coat pocket. He pulls out this little square blue box. He says, I want to show you something, and I have a question. And as he put his hand into his pocket, the tears started to stream down his face. And he pulls out this little box, this little blue box, and he opens it, and, you know, on a velvet little cushion pillow is this silver, this sterling silver coin with the queen's imprint on it. And another one of my friends won one, actually. So, uh, you know... I guess I'm wondering when mine's going to come. I'm just kidding, right? It's like against everything we're talking about. And tears streaming down his face. And he holds it and he shows it to me. He says, do you know what this is? And I said, yeah, actually, my friend so-and-so, he won one as well. Congratulations. And he says, no, not congratulations. He said, what did I do wrong? I said, well, what what do you mean? What did you do wrong? He said, Jesus told us, that if we follow him and we obey him well, the world will hate us, persecute us, and eventually will kill us. But now the world is celebrating me. What did I do wrong? I must have done, I must not be following Jesus the right way. This is someone who sees that the measure of the cross in his life is the measure of his obedience is the measure of how closely he's following Jesus. And if the world's celebrating him when the world is supposed to hate him and persecute him, something's wrong with this picture. That's a true Christian. That's a true Christian. But you don't have to wait till you win the Queen's Jubilee Award because I may never win one. And I'm perfectly okay with that. I've made my peace with it. But it is enough that the next time that I'm blamed for something that I didn't do, that I look to the cross and say, Jesus, for which one of your good works did they crucify you? If you were blameless and they crucified you, and in this one thing I happen to be blameless, maybe I should accept it gracefully as well. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. I have sinned. Forgive me, my fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. Please pray for me.